Welcome to Madang. Today's special guest is the very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, who is the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. In this episode, she shares about the long history of anti-blackness in the church, whiteness, why black lives matter, just communities, and what resurrection hope means. Please stay tuned. Please join Homebrew Christianity's Advent class with John Dominic Crossan. If you want to dig into the biblical Christmas narratives with one of the most respected New Testament scholars alive, then please sign up. It will feature four visual lectures, live Q&A, a discussion of his book, The First Christmas, and an online community of interested learners. Plus, the class is donation-based, including zero dollars. So join the fun and get ready to nerd with your Bibles out. Orbis Books, the publishing arm of the Marinold Fathers and Brothers, offers a wide range of books and authors whose works explore the global dimension of faith, invite dialogue with diverse cultures and traditions, and serve the cause of reconciliation and peace. Call toll-free 1-800-258-5838 or online at orbisbooks.com and use M-A-D for a 30% discount. Don't miss out on this special deal. You can even order Dean Douglas's book, Resurrection Hope, for 30% discount with the code M-A-D. Do you find it difficult to read the Bible? Would you like to engage with it on a deeper level? Bibliotheca is a Bible that invites you to experience the sacred library in a totally different way the way it was experienced by its ancient readers. Unlike a typical reference Bible that looks and feels like a dictionary, this edition presents the text as inviting literature. The text is spread across five cloth-bound volumes. No chapter or verse numbers, no cross-references, no notes. Since its publication six years ago, Bibliotheca has helped tens of thousands of readers transform the way they read the Bible. Bibliotheca is currently taking pre-orders for another print run. And if you order now, you'll get special early bird pricing. And as a big bonus, your purchase will support the Madang podcast as well. Use the code Madang when you check out, and $20 of every pre-ordered set will go toward the work that we do here at Madang. Again, visit bibliotheca.co or check the link in our show notes. And be sure to use the code Madang, M-A-D-A-N-G, when you check out. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Today's very special guest is a very reverend, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, who is named the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary and Professor of Theology at Union. She was named the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair in Theology in November 2019. She also serves as a canon theologian at the Washington National Cathedral and theologian in residence at Trinity Church Wall Street. 
Her academic work has focused on womanist theology, Black theology, sexuality, and the Black church, and racial and social justice. Her Orbis books include The Black Christ, What's Faith Got to Do With It, and Stand Your Ground. In addition to preaching in pulpits across the nation and speaking at universities and other institutions around the globe, Dean Douglas is a frequent and vocal presence in today's print broadcast and digital public sphere, speaking on racial and social justice, among other matters. Today, she is with me to discuss her book, Resurrection Hope. Cornell West says, Kelly Brown Douglas is a towering theologian in this age of Black Lives Matter, who builds on and goes beyond the profound legacies of James Cone and James Baldwin, Katie Cannon, and Dolores Williams. Resurrection Hope takes us on a courageous and visionary journey full of brilliant scholarship, political, and spiritual determination. Wow, that's a wonderful endorsement. I wish I had such an endorsement on one of my books. So thank you so much, Dean Douglas, for taking the time to be with me on Madang. Uh, no, I thank you for the privilege of being in this conversation. Oh, you are too kind. It's just, you know, I've admired you from afar. Mm. So I'm just excited that you are going to be my guest here. But one day I do hope to meet you in the flesh, in the person. <laughs> well, it is mutual. I look forward to that day. Oh, thank you so much. So I really, really love your book, Resurrection you. Hope. It, what, it's behind you and I've got this wonderful copy. But before we get into that, you know, you have this full life like you got you're putting on so many hats all the time how do you do it all I'm just curious so tell us how you do it all sometimes I wonder myself but you know what first of all I should say it it's really I see all of this as a privilege uh and something that I never expected really to be in this position to do the work that I do. And so I don't see it, I truly don't see it as a burden. I, I, I truly see it as a privilege. And when you, I see it as something, not that I have to do, but that I get to do, uh -huh. right? And so when, when I approach it with that, uh, it doesn't seem burdensome and all of that, you know? And yes, you know, I do have to take time to uh, catch my breath and 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 take care of myself uh, in that regard. And so I enjoy uh, family and friends and uh, love sports and do things like that that have uh, outlets. But I must say, really, when I wake up in the morning and I say this without exaggeration, I feel so blessed uh, and feel that this privilege uh gives me a certain responsibility and to do the work and and for me living this life is about paying my rent for living on this earth and i really mean that and so mm -hmm. i approach this work with joy and that keeps me going 
That is so wonderful. I think that's a great philosophy for all of us to adopt and, and live by. I think that's, I think, yeah, we got to pay our rent and, you know, be grateful every day. So thank you because everything you do, you do it so well. Oh, so I, I don't know about that. <laughs> this, this, I try and, and, and I, I, I certainly, you know, I just try to progress and not be perfect as some of my exercise instructors say, but, uh, yeah, so thank you for that. You are very kind <laughs> and very gracious. <laughs> oh, if you want more compliments, just stick around me. I'll send you more. <laughs> but I really loved your book because, mm. you know, not only do you do all the church work and then the teaching and the, and the dean work, and then, you know, you do this public work, you're also a mother. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is a uh, it's a it's a blessing to be a mom because yes. not all of us become moms or get to be moms or but so I just you know you, you're able to be a mother and you have you know when I read this book you know you're having this texting and conversation with your yes. son which I find so beautiful because I have two boys and a daughter mm. and my daughter is really nice you know she she <laughs> does the calling and the texting but my sons, uh, you know, it's very minimal. Yeah. Like after my 20 texts, then they'll respond to make sure that I know that they're alive. Right, exactly. <laughs> but for you, it seemed like this loving relationship, you know, you, it's like this friendship, mother-son thing that kind of led, like that you have, which is so beautiful and which I really, really admire because I think that really, you know, that, I think that was maybe one of the bases for your book, but yes. it just makes it so alive and so meaningful. Like it just brought like goosebumps all over me, mm. you know, reading your son's texts and you're, you know, having this conversation back and forth. And so when I was preparing this, you know, I, I read some of your other work and your other interviews and one of them. Um, you know, you did this book launch at Union Seminary, and yes, that was yes. a beautiful book launch. I wish I get to do a book launch like that. But there, I remember you kind of saying something like you were kind of called to write this That's book. Right. So can you just share us how you got into this and how you, yeah, tell us how you began. Yes, first of all, thank you uh, for your comments in relationship to my son and, uh, and that relationship. And I really do. That has been a blessing and a surprise, right? We are mm. always surprised uh, by our children and you have three, so so <laughs> you know, and we always hope that we can have a good relationship with our children. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I've often told my son, uh, who's now 28, I've said, uh, you know, I have wanted a good relationship, but I could have never imagined the one that we have. And, uh, and so I'm uh, blessed by that. And it's, I'm sure, you know, you probably feel this way about your children as well. It's one thing I, I always say to him, you, because you're my son, as a parent, I'm supposed to love you. I said, so I do love you, but I don't have to like you. And, <laughs> but I like you. And, uh, and so, uh, so I've been blessed by that. When you talk about this book as a call, and of course, he's uh, very much a part of that. This was not a book that I ever expected to do, Grace. And in fact, you know, I said, um, in my mind, I said, well, 
I don't, I don't, I no more books. I don't know. Uh, I have nothing to say. I don't know why I think I ever had anything to say, but you know, uh, so that was that. And typically for my books don't start with me in my head. They typically start from the source of questions. And uh, in this regard, this was sort of an unexpected journey because so many things came together. And over a number of years, of course, uh, particularly as the sort of Black Lives Matter movement began to emerge uh, with the uh, murder of Trayvon, my son was a teenager then. And so we weren't really, at at that time in our relationship, uh, I was basically the one trying to make sure that he had the necessary strategies for navigating life and getting around as a as a black man at that time uh he was a teenager and he's six foot as he is now with locks and so all of those concerns but so he was figuring that out and then of course we move further and and you've got michael brown you've got philandro castile which is when our conversations really began in earnest with uh, about these issues with philandro castile and uh, and he really began, my son, to ask me then, what difference does all this make? Because of course we know with Philandrel, he followed all of the instructions. And it, I remember hearing his mother giving, saying that she told him what to do, hands on steering wheel, et cetera. And my son said, those are the very instructions that you give to me, and they are. And he said, and Philandrel did everything that was right, and he's still dead. And that was the beginning of our conversations through text, because at this generation, they're always texting, yeah. <laughs> uh, through text probing. And sometimes, as I think even in that conversation, we would come all, I would come off of the text and call him. Mm. So uh, I kept those, in, and I kept those not only, probably because I'm a Luddite and don't know how to get rid of conversations. <laughs> uh, so they lived on my uh, phone, but I also kept, they lived with me. Mm. And so if we sort of fast forward, it never, it wasn't getting better, right? You know, yeah. and, and things it's like, oh my gosh, even through uh, a black president, it uh, of course it elevated. And, and, and we, many of us have written about why that occurred. And so you have this elevation And so we get to sort of the period when this book, I was compelled to write this book Mm -hmm. is during, of all things, COVID. And what we see during COVID are of course, what I've said, these two pandemics coming together, the health pandemic and this pandemic that has long since been ignored, which is anti-Black white supremacy. And they come together and converge with the COVID crisis because we have this disproportionate impact upon Black lives. Mm-hmm. And if that isn't enough, then we have George Floyd and, and, and it goes on. So here I am with my own sort of questions bubbling of really, and I've, I've come to recognize really that I was in this sort of state later of sort of racial uh, despair and racial trauma and so I've got this bubbling within myself. And here's my son pushing these questions. And as a mother, mm-hmm. you know, you want to answer your son's questions. And he's asking me, and this is the question that I couldn't shake, right? He said, do you really believe 
that there will ever be a time when Black lives matter. And he would often say to me, you know, it's time to pack our bags. What are these protests all, what's going to happen? These don't, nothing's going to change. And, you know, and he would go, I believe in God, but what's God doing? These questions penetrated through to the core of me and really brought me to this place of what do I believe and how long, oh God? And, and, and I remembered, uh, I didn't know, I had to look up where these words came from, but I remembered W.E.B. Du Bois's words from what turned out to be Litany of Atlanta. I remembered the words, keep not, oh silent, oh God. And that I, I kept, that was playing over. And so this book, I, it called me in, my, my own sense of being at this point of despair and faithlessness and really pushed uh, by my son as a mother, wanting to be able to authentically answer his questions if I had the ability to answer them. So I took people on a journey, yeah. <laughs> selfishly on this journey uh, with me to find those answers and to discover uh, if I still could maintain my faith. Yeah, I'm so glad you took us on this journey and that from the text from your son, that, you know, having the conversation that, you know, it became this beautiful book because it's a very convicting book. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful book. I just find, you know, you as a theologian, you know, we're both theologians. Yeah. It's It's a craft to put in, all this theological stuff and then make it all sound so clear. That's not easy <laughs> well, to do. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? well, I hope I did well, thank you, yeah. No, you did a great job because I, you know, when I think about my studies, I, I studied in Canada and, you know, I was just there, I was invited to speak at my alma mater and then I had all this nightmare, like all these awful feelings because I remember sitting in classes and not understanding anything that was happening and theologians and you know you're reading them and nothing made sense but you do it so well in this book and that's not easy to do so thank you for that and thank you for sharing you know as a black mom that you had to tell your son what to do if a cop stops you you know that to me is unimaginable because I don't do that mm-hmm. as an Asian American mom. There's other things I need to yeah, do, but not to. that. Right. Yeah. There and then, you know, I can't imagine how mothers and fathers and caregivers have to do this with black children and black sons in particular. That just breaks my heart. And as you were sharing that, that that just, you know, it really moved me. Yeah, no, well, uh, yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's funny, of course, uh, these conversations that we have with our children, uh, people who don't have to have those conversations just became aware of those as we've gone through this Black Lives Matter uh, sort of period. And, and, and when, of course, when Trayvon was murdered, and there were many before Trayvon, and you yeah. will remember, for mm-hmm. instance, if you look at the films now that are out about Emmett Till's uh, lynching, yeah. that his mother is when she's putting him on the train. They, you know, show how his mother gives him instructions, mm-hmm. you know, of how to navigate the reality as a black young man down there. And so this is a part of 
the story of Black parenting and how basically to stay alive and navigate. But, and so uh, this was just a part of what it meant to, as, as my son grew up, uh, you know, giving him the age appropriate instructions and, but you never have, every night still, now he's checking on me, but every night, you know, it's like, as we were talking before this conversation, he has to text me and let me know he's in safely, even as a young adult. Yeah. But I wrote, when you talk about the clarity, you know what, Grace, the, the, I, I was writing this book as if to, for my son and oh, to make it, make it accessible because theology, you know, it seems to me is, should not be this academic enterprise. Theology is indeed faith-seeking understanding. And this is what this journey was for me, trying to understand my faith in the midst of these realities of anti-Black white supremacy. And, uh, you know, and that means that we have to help other people of faith try, they have the same questions or similar questions mm -hmm. to understand and their faith. And if as theologians, we're only talking to each other and we're making up words and talking in riddles that even we don't understand, then it seems to me that we aren't doing the work of being a theologian. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and because we aren't accountable to one another, uh, we are accountable to the faith that we are seeking to understand and to those faith communities. And so uh, I've, I've tried and, and uh, to write in a way that would make sense to me. And in this book, it was particularly significant because if it's a conversation with my son that frames it, then my son should be able to understand the answer. And he's not a theologian, right? Or not a trained theologian. Yeah. So thank you for doing that and sharing all that backstory because, you know, you that all helped you to form this book and, you know, who you're addressing and who you want to reach out in the book. Um, at the beginning, you, you talk about whiteness and as a construct exists only in opposition to that which is non-white. And you see, for me, this whiteness uh, category is so important. It's something that I'm really immersed in right now. So can you share with us and the listeners, you know, why this term is so important? Because you bring it right at the beginning of the book. So what is whiteness and how are we to deal with this whiteness in theology, okay. in the church and in society? Yeah, thank you uh, for that. And you're right. You know, this is a very important construct. And yeah. I think the first thing that we have to understand and that those people who are raced white have to understand is that they are raced. Yes. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and we have, in not recognizing that, then we can't begin to recognize uh, white supremacist realities and culture and the way whiteness plays itself out because there's been this attitude or this the privilege of no i'm you're raced i'm not raced well no you are raced you're raced white and what yeah. does it mean then to be raced white and to live into that construct of whiteness now if we don't understand it as a racialized construct then we are never going to be able to recognize fully that culture and the privileges of what it means to be race white because you're denying that, right? 
And so it becomes very important to first recognize that, recognize that those people who are white Americans are raced white, and being raced white means that they have certain privileges that come along yeah. with that, right? That supersede simply being a human being. And so then one would say, well, what does it mean? How do we understand whiteness? Because, you know, white people are always saying, well, I'm Irish this, or I'm German this, or I'm this, and that is like, and so I, I, I borrow from James Baldwin and this is like, yeah, but a funny thing happened on the way to Ellis Island. You all yeah. became white, right? And so yeah. that's when, and, and so what does it mean to become white? You, you, are, you only talk about your sort of your old ancestry and what that means in relationship to those who are non-white so that you can deny what it means to be white. <laughs> And so, so good. Right, right? So you all became white. And so how did you become white? What defined that? What they were doing is defining themselves over against indigenous people in, in this nation. And of course, uh, uh, those in the African diaspora, the Africans. So it's like, we ain't you, we're white, <laughs> right? And so that's where you get this reality of sort of, it's, it's sort of this, I wrote in another book, this sort of this Anglo-Saxon exceptionalist reality morphed into this reality of whiteness because certainly everyone that came here wasn't Anglo-Saxon, but the common thing that they had is they looked Anglo-Saxon. And so <laughs> that, you know, whiteness became sort of the, uh, uh, if you will, sort of the symbol or, or that, that thing that you had to be that allowed you at least to assimilate into what it meant to be Anglo-Saxon uh, or adopted Anglo-Saxons, you were white. But whiteness means nothing in relationship to others who are, it only has meaning in relationship to those who aren't white because that's how it emerged. And so if we understand that, then we can then begin to understand this social, political, economic, cultural construct of whiteness. But we can't do that if we deny the reality of whiteness. And that's what's happening today, you see in these debates about CRT, quote unquote, CRT, critical race theory, and not wanting to have yeah. certain history in our schools, because what they don't want to do is to acknowledge the reality that is the construct of whiteness that has sustained and, uh, uh, and fostered white supremacy. Yeah. Wow. That, I just felt like that was a big sermon. <laughs> you were preaching. So moving. So thank you. Because that concept is such an important concept to understand the racialization, the racism, discrimination, xenophobia that is happening in our society. So, I, you know, right from the get go, you, you talk about whiteness, which I was so grateful for. And then you also provide this long history of anti-blackness in the yes. church. That to me, I knew of it a little bit, but not all the way back. That to me was so enriching. So if you can share just a bit so that enough for the listeners to then go and buy your book to read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe they'll say no. <laughs> they, need, they need to read it because uh. of the long history. Like I just didn't get the long history. I understood a little bit of the history, but not. So just say and share a little bit about this long yeah, history of anti-Blackness. Yeah. Thank you again for that. Because first of all, you know what? Let me just say real briefly how I got to this 
anti-blackness because in my previous works like stand your ground or other works i talked about whiteness and 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 white supremacy and white privilege but i didn't talk about anti-blackness and it was really these what was going on from uh sort of philandro uh and forward and uh and after trayvon uh and my son's questions that i began to say something else is going on here because one can be a white supremacist mm-hmm. and not, you know, they can just think white people are better and da 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 da, and not have such instinctive responses to black bodies, right? You know, that even so instinctive that a black man can't bird watch uh, uh, without being threatened and assaulted. And so I couldn't figure this out. What there's something about blackness. So really, I went on a journey to answer this question. And as always, it took me further back than I even knew that I would go. Yeah, that was surprising. And and, and, and it was for me and to to trace it. And so what we see in in short is that this this reality of anti-blackness emerges very early on one in our philosophical tradition through persons like Aristotle uh uh it's carried forward in our literary tradition you know how many times have we studied uh uh uh, William Shakespeare and not looked at the way he treats his black characters right uh uh that's how it gets how we are all socialized in this reality of anti-blackness you know how many times have we study not only Aristotle, but a John Locke, a Hume and others, and, and just ignore a Kant to like sort of gives up this sort of philosophical racism and yeah. not, and just ignore their realities of anti-Blackness. But then there's the it's Christian religious tradition, the Christian tradition. And deeply embedded within this tradition, yeah. right? Even if we, began to just look at the way in which in our sacred texts, lightness and darkness mm-hmm. are talked about. Light is good, darkness. Now this becomes the foundation upon which a more racialized anti-Blackness can be built. Then we look at the, what we call the Desert Fathers, those early, that early, the earliest monastic tradition it is, we don't even have to say it's implied. It is there, you know, the black demon who, and now we get all the tropes of anti-blackness, who is also very overly sexualized, right? Uh, So we see this tradition deeply, this anti-blackness deeply embedded within our Christian faith tradition and it continues to move forward. I mean, forget that we've whitenized Jesus, right? You know, so all our, right, you know, it's like people, I remember when, uh, oh, what was that movie with uh, The Passion of Christ, I think, yeah, came uh-huh. out, and everybody was all up in arms about uh, how that was depicted. And I'm like, what you ought to be up in arms about is this blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. Uh, uh, so, but look how we've whitenized that tradition, right? Yeah. And so, but you could you only whitenize it 
if underneath, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to white nice the Christian tradition and white nice all of the sort of religious icons? I mean, there's no way that Jesus was blonde hair and blue eyes from the part of the world. This is just not, it's historically incorrect and it's certainly theologically incorrect. But so what, and Moses and then, you know, John Heston, Charles Heston rather playing Moses, really? Uh, the, these, these people were not uh, uh, blonde hair and blue eyes. It's again, historically, inaccurate and theologically great. So why do you have to whitenize it? Because you've already made, there's an underlying assumption about that which is dark, that which is black. Those are our first sort of, it, it, it lets you know that there's this anti-black tradition that is undergirding the Christian tradition throughout history that has created this whitenizing. And so you see it uh, moving forward. Uh, and we see it in our religious iconography today and in our daggone yeah. church hymns, et cetera. I said, you know, as an Episcopal fan, I said, I do not want to hear another Ferris Lord Jesus song. Uh, uh, so, right. So, so it is what we have to recognize is the way in which even our uh, faith tradition, the Christian tradition is not uh free from or exempted from the culture uh, uh, which carries it forward. And this is a uh, Euro-Anglo-Saxon culture that has carried it forward and shaped the tradition uh, and shaped the way in which we think ab about uh, yeah. the, the, the sacred texts, think about God and Jesus and think about good and evil. And so nothing is, it's not benign, you know? And I'm not saying to stop reading texts with lightness and darkness, but we have to interrogate them. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's all there. And, and, and so for me, it was like, wow, this anti-Blackness runs deep. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is so good. And I just love the way you, you just shared all that because it's so exciting because you make it so alive because some of these, you know, the philosophers that were embedded into Christian philosophy, Christian theology, you know, we never kind of question it, but you bring in Kant and you bring in other thinkers and, you know, this black and white is also reflected in our society, you know, Star Wars movies, you know, Darth Vader and then the good people, you know, wearing white and etc. So it is so interesting. And, you know, as you were speaking, I was just reminded, you know, because you were giving it so much detail that feminist theologians, we were so accused of, you know, using our experiences and using our context as if the men never used it. You know, they, they presented us some pristine theology, but it was never. <laughs> right. But you know what? But that's exactly right. But that's the privilege of whiteness. And yes. that's the, that's uh -huh. the yeah, same exactly. right privilege of being able to say you aren't raced. Whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. No, you are raced and you've raced the world. Uh, uh, right. And so yeah. that's exactly. And you've raced theology. You know, what's interesting is you talked earlier about you know, studying theology and being back at your school and <laughs> understanding things. Well, here's the thing. Who has defined what theology is and how it should be, right? Who's mm -hmm. defined what systematic theology is <laughs> and, the, and how you're supposed to do it? It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, other people are doing theology. And, you know, I think of, of, of the uh, Black enslaved and the the uh how they began to christianity emerged for them out of the sort of hush harbors they some if you look at the spirituals i mean these are great theological 
uh, documents, doctrines, you know, these fun <laughs> theology where they're talking about uh, the Trinity, if you will, and, and salvation and all that. But so, but they didn't have to do it in, in with language that, what are you talking about? I, so who's defined it, right? And who's yeah. defined knowledge and what's acceptable knowledge as long as it's acceptable to them. So look what's happening today. They're trying to define what's, what's acceptable history. Yeah, you know, yeah anything exactly. Anything that affirms them or makes them comfortable. So, so, so no, you know, you're right here that no, this is the same thing these theologians are saying, well, we're doing theology and but we're doing it objectively. Uh, no objective and universal theology is all that is affirming of whiteness. And so other people of color like ourselves have come through and said, what? Uh, uh, you know, and we name our experience and, and, and said that our story is God's story. God's story is our story. We name, and so, and the theology is never divorced because it's not from context. Because guess what else is contextual? Well, the revelation of God. And so, you know, and so God's revelation is is contextual. And so, the context under which God reveals God's self is a part of the revelation itself. So is our experience into which God enters. And so, you know, we begin to name that and they begin to say those sort of dominant theological, uh, those from the de uh, dominant theological class said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not theology. That's your experience because we're objective. Well, we know. Uh, so we've seen how that plays out. So, uh, you know, because that plays, everything is, if it's, if it's, universal we're usually universalizing the experience of the dominant cultural group yeah, yeah. i just love it even you just share because you say so much of what i want to say in public but i get a little afraid to say so yeah. thank you for sharing that because when i went back that was 21 years after my phd graduation it was terrifying and they wanted me to talk on my book invisible which is asian american i thought oh no but they asked for it, so I gave it. But yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for just explaining all that because I think that's so important. And then going back to your son, you also write, your son said, I have no, I have, I don't have a reason to call the police. And you know, when you're when we talk about policing and the, you know, the militarization of the police, and then you also share the story of the 19-year-old. Elijah McLean in, in Aurora, Aurora, Colorado, who was described by a caller as sketchy. That's right. And then, you know, he's just walking home from uh, out of the, from the convenience store and then the police get him. And he's trying to say, you know, I don't do drugs. I don't even kill flies. He's trying to share his humanity. And when you were writing this, I, it was so uh, heart-wrenching to see that Someone has to share that they are human. I don't understand why anyone has to do that. And when Black people do that, it is just so painful. This young little boy, you know, very scrawny, like he's so small, he wouldn't have hurt anybody, but then he dies yeah, you know, and, under police. And there's so, just been a re recently in the last, mm -hmm. what, uh, 10 days or so, uh, uh, uh they have just proclaimed that it was a murder or something a, a new finding on that that affirmed uh actually what happened uh to elijah mccain and that they killed him uh 
uh, by overdosing him with ketamine and uh, was the cause of his death and, and ruled it uh, just recently a homicide, but that's right. Um, and, you know, for one of the things when people talk about the enslavement of black people and oftentimes people who want to ignore that reality and uh, will say, oh, well, you know, there was slavery before and slavery in Africa, da di da da But one thing, and I always say, we've got to talk about it as chattel slavery, because what when we say chattel slavery, what happened here, and this gets us back to Elijah having to proclaim his humanity, mm -hmm. is that Black people were disengaged from their humanity and made property and no longer seen as human. And that legacy carries forward. Uh, and so you're right. And, when, and, and it was important for me to write in this book about Elijah McLean because uh, he was forgotten. And of course, his story, he wasn't forgotten by his family and those people in rural Colorado. His story became more national after the murder of uh, George Floyd. And his story was lifted up again, but it's, yeah, it's, I am sorry. It's one of the videos that I saw that I'm not sorry I saw, but it was, uh, but I am because it lives with me and the video of him saying to the police, uh, I'm just trying to get home. I'm different. Uh, you know, I think he said, I play the violin or yeah. something. Uh, and they replayed those videos with, with this new sort of finding that came out. Uh, likewise, it was hard for me to watch the video of uh, Tamir Rice when a uh, 12-year-old who was killed in Cleveland uh, playing in the playground with some toy gun. The police just rolled up on him and killed him. Uh, he did, wouldn't have even seen it coming. So, so you're very right um, in that regard. And, and, and it's left my son and we just had this conversation uh, a few days ago. I can't remember what the incident was that brought this on where he says, I cannot imagine calling the police because black people call the police. Oh, I know there was a woman uh, called the police, a black woman, and then she ends up being the yeah. one uh arrested and her daughter arrested she's the one that called the police uh they said i can't because when black people call the police he said it's less than 50 50 chance that it's going to end well that is that's so heartbreaking and you touch on the humanity of black people and you know the the subtitle is a future where black lives matter and you also touch on you know and i have to ask you people keep talking about all lives matter mm. when you know we're trying to focus on black lives matter so what do you say when people bring it up and you know i'm sure they brought it up in your face as you oh, were yes. in the marches and and the demonstrations what is your response when people say all lives yeah matter? it's this this mantra that all lives matter only emerged in response to people proclaiming that Black lives matter. First of all, all lives will matter when Black lives matter. Second of all, and perhaps uh, most of all, what they're protesting is the fact that a Black person cannot represent humanity in all lives, right? 
when a black body, when you can look at a black body and see that as the human body and representing humanity, then we will know that black lives matter and hence all lives matter. And so we have to be clear when people say that, that's only because you can't say that black lives matter. And, and, and your way to sort of uh, gaslight that, if you will say, well, but all lives matter. Uh, to, no, they don't matter because you can't say black lives matter and you can't see black lives as representing all lives and all humanity. Uh, and so, you know, you, I call it out for what it is and say, okay, if all lives matter, then you should be able to say that Black lives matter. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing it because it, it's always being debated and people keep arguing and it happens over and over again and your book touches it. So thank you so much uh, for sharing that. And you, your book also talks about how, you know, good white Christians who offer that they are praying for change or are praying for black people in these times of trouble. What is your response when people and when white good Christians come up to you and say statements like that? Yeah, well, you know, if, uh, good Christians say that they are a part of as our epistle uh, presiding bishop called us into the Jesus movement and they are followers of Jesus. And I first always remind them, you know, prayer's good. Uh, but Jesus wasn't crucified because he prayed too much. Prayer allowed him to do that which got him put on the cross. So, you know, prayer's good. It keeps us in touch with that which is beyond ourselves and it allows us to do the work that Jesus calls us to, which is the work of a more just future. Because as Christians, that's what we're accountable to. We are not accountable to the, the present realities of even the way we define justice. We aren't accountable to the status quo. We're accountable to the more just future that God calls us to. And that's what Jesus was all about. That's what the gospel was all about. That's the gospel good news. Uh, uh, and so prayer helps us to stay accountable to that, but prayer does not substitute for that accountability. Wow, thank you. And you you wrote it so beautifully and you're just sharing it so beautifully. Mm -hmm. It's so touching to hear from you. So thank you for that. Okay. Um, you know, I wish I could, we can have this conversation all day long, yes. but I know you're busy and I'm sure you have other schedules after this, yeah. but I do want to ask you, um, you know, because you brought in your son and then you also talk about uh, Mama Mary, mm. grandmother, and how, you know, she, uh, she, you know, they couldn't have understood that they would get freedom, but still they fought for freedom and that they met God in that struggle. Theirs is a resurrecting hope. Right. It becomes their hope that you are writing this book. That's and right. so, you know, your title is Resurrection Hope. So can you say a bit more? Because I, I think that is so powerful. And so it is provocative for me. It is also empowering for me because sometimes we do things knowing that we may not get it, go there. And, you know, with Dr. King and other Black leaders who have said that, but still you don't just give up. And right. as you began this, you know, you said every day is a blessing. You're just so happy that you are doing and that you get to do what you're doing. 
So, you know, when you turn on the news, another black person is shot or, you know, something happens and your book also talks about just communities. When there is so much injustice, racial injustice, social and inju economic injustice, gender injustice, um, all these injustices, what is this resurrection hope and what keeps you going? Yeah, you know, first we do this work when I think of the enslaved people, you know, my great grandmother uh, was born into slavery and uh, clearly uh, was free. And, uh, uh, and I knew her, but, you know, it was too young to really know her, right? Uh, I can remember her, uh, but I, I wish I was older and would have engaged with her, but I, was, I think she died when I was like six or so. Um, but I think of her and I think of the people who didn't have the opportunity to be free uh, and were born in slavery, died in slavery, never dreamt that they would breathe a free breath and they never did breathe a free breath. But they fought for freedom anyhow. And they fought for freedom that they knew they would not see. But they believed would indeed, I don't mean to rhyme, but would be would become a reality because they believed in the freedom that was the justice of God that God promises us all. It is in that struggle and that fight for freedom that they met God. And it is in the struggle where we meet God and, and we meet God as we fight and struggle and partner with God. That to me is what faith is all about, that you trust enough in God's promise for a more just future, that you partner with God to move toward and foster that future. That's faith, trusting in God, enough to partner with God. Now, it is easy to despair and stay in these moments of sort of crucifying death, all of the realities that you describe and get weighed down by it. And I will confess that I was weighed down by it, right? As I said in the book, I, you know, I prayed about it and, and heard that sort of resurrection voice of Jesus, meet me in Galilee. I said, where, where, where is that? And I went down to the Black Lives Matter protest, making a long story short. And I came alive there because the protest, to be in protest, in struggle, means that you have this belief beyond what the crucifying reality surrounding you suggests. That's the hope. You always find hope in the struggle. And you're revived. It's sort of that resurrection hope you've brought to life. And that, that, that revived me once again. And it reminded me of those enslaved. And it reminded me of this, if we fight for the, the children we cannot see, mm. we aren't fighting for ourselves or our present, we're fighting for those we cannot see. Wow. My enslaved forebears fought for me, they couldn't see me. I wouldn't be here if they didn't fight for me and my future. So we are fighting for the children we cannot see. That's why Jesus said, you know, weep not for me, but for yourselves and your children. 
That's why Jesus said, do not prevent those who prevent the children from coming to me in my kingdom. Those I can't, I'm a person, so I can't quote it exactly, but you know that that scripture. Don't, don't, that we should not be a stumbling block for the children coming to the kingdom of God. That's, that's, so I hear that differently now, right? We are fighting for the children we cannot see. We cannot be a stumbling block from them enjoying the justice that is the justice of God. And so when we do that, that's the, re that's the resurrection hope. You know, not being mired in the despairs and thinking that the crucifying realities of death are going to win. They only win. They only win if we give up. And so that for me, when I, uh, in the end, that's bought me back. It bought me back going down to Black Lives Matter Plaza and seeing people in the midst of a pandemic coming out and protesting and fighting for Black lives to matter, they could only do that because they believed that one day they would matter. Mm. And my forebears believed in a future that is mine. <laughs> and so they fought for me who they could not see. And that's, that's, that's what moves me forward. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Wow. Thank you so much, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas. Your book is so powerful, but you brought it alive during this short conversation on Madame podcast. I'm just thrilled and honored that you were my guest today. I hope all the listeners will go out and get Resurrection Hope, A Future Where Black Lives Matter, published by Orbis Books. They're a great publisher, and I know they publish your other books too. So thank you so much, Dean Douglas, for spending some time with me in the midst of all your busy schedule. It's such a pleasure and honor. And I learned so much from your book and just from this conversation. So thank you so much. Well, I am humbled by this invitation and this conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Please join Homebrew Christianity's Advent class with John Dominic Crossan. If you want to dig into the biblical Christmas narratives with one of the most respected New Testament scholars alive, then please sign up. It will feature four visual lectures, live Q&A, a discussion of his book, The First Christmas, and an online community of interested learners. Plus, the class is donation-based, including zero dollars. So join the fun and get ready to nerd with your Bibles out. Orbis Books, the publishing arm of the Marinold Fathers and Brothers, offers a wide range of books and authors whose works explore the global dimension of faith, invite dialogue with diverse cultures and traditions, and serve the cause of reconciliation and peace. Call toll-free 1-800-258-5838 or online at orbisbooks.com and use M-A-D for a 30% discount. Don't miss out on this special deal. You can even order Dean Douglas's book, Resurrection Hope, for 30% discount with the code M-A-D. Do you find it difficult to read the Bible? Would you like to engage with it on a deeper level? 
Bibliotheca is a Bible that invites you to experience the sacred library in a totally different way, the way it was experienced by its ancient readers. Unlike a typical reference Bible that looks and feels like a dictionary, this edition presents the text as inviting literature. The text is spread across five cloth-bound volumes. No chapter or verse numbers, no cross-references, no notes. Since its publication six years ago, Bibliotheca has helped tens of thousands of readers transform the way they read the Bible. Bibliotheca is currently taking pre-orders for another print run, and if you order now, you'll get special early bird pricing, and as a big bonus, your purchase will support the Madang podcast as well. Use the code Madang when you check out, and $20 of every pre-ordered set will go toward the work that we do here at Madang. Again, visit bibliotheca.co or check the link in our show notes, and be sure to use the code MADANG, M-A-D-A-N-G, when you check out. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.